coming up on this episode of Here's an Idea. So I always think about Scotty on Star Trek, right? Scotty needs manufacturing capabilities and needs needs to be able to make things to respond to dire situations. So I think that's the the exciting thing for me is that I see these technologies as, as really enabling for that kind of science fiction future. What would you say is, I guess, the coolest thing that you've seen 3D printed? If you wanted a back scratcher. Um, so we weren't able to print the back scratcher on orbit. This episode of Here's an Idea is brought to you by Futech Advanced Sensor Technology. Futech helps leading innovators shape the future by providing custom sensing and test measurement instruments for groundbreaking applications. Futech's solutions push the limits of measurement capabilities and development to reinvent and redefine sensor technology. Go to www.futech.com to learn more. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Here's an Idea. I'm Billy Hurley with Tech Briefs. This month on Here's an Idea, we're continuing our series of interviews with the researchers and engineers behind the latest innovations in space and aerospace. Today on the show, we have Tracy Prater, a materials engineer at NASA Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama. Tracy supports NASA's In Space Manufacturing Project. The motto of the project is Make It, Don't Take It. With Tracy's help on this project, astronauts on space missions may one day be able to 3D print the parts they need rather than launch them from Earth. Tracy, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. How many spare parts are being sent regularly to the International Space Station? So Space Station is readily accessed by several different rockets or launch vehicles, and we have a lot of storage space on ISS. So ISS itself is as long as a football field. It's really a, a five-bedroom house in space. Um, so you ask about, you know, the facts and figures. Each year we launch about 3,000 kilograms of spare parts to space station, and there are 13,000 kilograms of spares and replacement units that are on orbit. And then in addition to that, there's 18,000 kilograms on the ground that are ready to fly if needed. So if something breaks on space station, the crew will just change out a unit and replace it with another unit um, that they have in storage. So that works really well for space station, but if you're thinking about Mars um, or even a sustained lunar presence, Mars is a six to nine month journey uh, one way. So you might not have this kind of orbital replacement unit option for those kind of long duration missions. You might need to manufacture a spare part I think this is such a, a really critical enhancement for crew safety because even though we've been operating space station for 20 years now, um, there are still unexpected failures of systems. Um, so this can be not only a way to reduce the amount of up mass and your logistics that you have to take with you, but how do you respond to those kind of unknown events, right? You can't 3D print a solution to everything, right? But there are some scenarios where an on-demand manufacturing capability would be of benefit. Yeah, can you give us an example of a kind of perfect candidate for a, the perfect kind of part that would uh, that is suitable for 3D printing? 
So when we flew the first printer in 2014, um, we printed a few, you know, what I would call functional parts or tools, but most of that mission was focused on printing, you know, specimens that you can test and get material properties out of. So pulling specimens apart, compressing specimens, flexing specimens. Um, but the tools we printed on that first mission were a sample container, a structural clip um, for, some, for some avionics, a torque tool, and a ratchet. Um, and the ratchet was unique in that it was actually uplinked from Earth. So there's, an, there's a great image of, of Butch Wilmore, an astronaut, holding that, that ratchet um, on ISS. And the printer was completely remotely commanded from Earth, but astronauts um, interact with these systems to remove the part from the build, build tray um, once the print was complete. Can you give us an idea of how that process worked to create, say, that, that ratchet? So is the idea that the design was uplinked to the, the printer and able to kind of create a custom part? Yeah, that's exactly you know, how that process flow works. There's essentially a computer-aided design file on Earth that is sliced, and that slicing determines the G-code, which, you know, governs the movements of the machine to create the part. Um, but yes, the file was uplinked from Earth. It was not stored on the printer software prior to launch. And that's the way we imagine this working. What's kind of been the reaction from astronauts who are using these 3D printed parts? Yeah, so Bush Wilmore was the astronaut who worked with the first um, 3D printer on its first round of operations. We went on to do a second round of operations with it as well. Um, but he was very, you know, enthusiastic about this technology. Um, our project manager had asked him, you know, what part that he would want to print. And he mentioned that, you know, the space station air in the cabin can be really dry. So he wanted a back scratcher. Um, so we weren't able to print the back scratcher on orbit, but uh, she did coordinate to have one printed on the, on the ground for him and give it to him. <laughs> That's great. So what kinds of materials are these 3D printed parts made from? With the first printer, we used a thermoplastic material, so a softer plastic. It's called acrylonitrile butadiene styrene, or ABS. It's actually the material that Legos are made out of, and it's the most common feedstock in desktop 3D printing systems. Uh, there was a second generation printer that was developed by Made in Space it's called the Additive Manufacturing Facility, um, and that's currently on orbit. And so that was intended to be more of our utilization printer. Um, and so that was the, the printer that was intended, um, you know, to, to actually print parts that, that would potentially be used on, on space station. And so that printer has actually a multi-material capability, so it can print with ABS, which I mentioned earlier, but also high-density polyethylene, um, which is like a plastic packaging type of material that can also be processed into the form of a wire plastic filament for 3D printing, and then also Ultim. 9085, uh, which is a, a blend of two different plastics. And so that's a higher strength, higher temperature material. Uh, so right now, the big focus of our project as well is moving toward printing metals on space station. So that would include titanium alloys, aluminum alloys that are commonly used in space systems. And so you can imagine when I talk about the part database and you look at what's in that, um, while there are some, some plastic parts, a lot of the parts, especially in environmental control and life support systems and crew tools, are metal. 
Um, and so we definitely want to move um, toward that capability to really open up the envelope and expand use cases um, for these technologies on space missions. How about for long duration missions? Is the idea that someday we'll use part of, say, the lunar environment as the feedstock for products or for objects in lunar missions? Yes. So the use of lunar surface materials for manufacturing applications is absolutely something um, that we want to enable as well with our systems. So the moon surface is covered with regolith. I tend to think of regolith as lunar soil. A planetary geologist could give you a much more nuanced uh, definition of that. But we have a number of lunar simulants on Earth which approximate the morphology of regolith, the chemical composition at various locations that we can actually use to test out in manufacturing systems. So we have a really, um, what I think is a really exciting project underway with the company Made in Space. And so through that, they are going to modify a previously flown 3D printer for plastics initially. And so that's going to be able to process a feedstock that is a blend of a plastic material and then also a lunar regolith simulant. Uh, so eventually we want to fly that modified system to space station to demonstrate on-orbit printing um, with what we would call in-situ resource utilization derived materials. So what that means is that one day you could take the plastic packaging you have around you that would otherwise be nuisance material, combine it with regolith and 3D print structures with it or even or parts with it at the smaller scale. So NASA ran actually a a Centennial Challenges prize competition called the 3D Printed Habitat Challenge that ended last year, which was also focused on that topic, but at a much larger scale. Um, so you can produce these type of polymer concretes as feedstock and then actually print structures in large format 3D printing that are as large as a, as a habitat. So yeah, we definitely want um, to just be able to use materials around us for manufacturing so that you don't have to also launch your feedstock. So how do you know that a part that is 3D printed in space is a good part? So I tell people it's really like looking at, at manufacturing vital signs, right? Like you can look at heart rate or respiration um, and get some idea of the health of a person. Manufacturing process signals that you're recording while you're building something can also tell you when and if um, something went wrong. So on space missions, um, hopefully these technologies have matured to the point where we could look at these signals from the manufacturing process, process as it's occurring um, to tell us if a part will meet requirements, right? So that might be temperature, it might be visual images of each layer, it might be looking at characteristics of each layer like surface roughness. Um, so that requires a lot of data um, and data mining and machine learning. But ultimately what you want is that part, and this phrase comes not from me, but from someone at Oak Ridge National Lab, born certified. So you know, coming off the machine, you can use that part um, because you have such good process control and such a good understanding of your process. Um, but I do want to say that one day I do think that we will have the ability um, to inspect parts in space in very similar ways um, to, to what we do on Earth, right? We might have ultrasound techniques, we might have X-ray or CT scanners um, to enable full inspection of a part, but we're not there yet. Um, so my point with regard to, to redesigning parts and using parts that weren't manufactured in space is that for right now, the use of a part might really be limited by our ability to inspect it. Um, and so that 
limits our capability to produce some of the more critical parts. By critical, I mean something like a spare that's in an environmental control and life support system, right? So that that spare failing would have a very high consequence of failure, um, whereas maybe a, a crew tool or a medical device wouldn't, or you could just make another one. Um, but I think that we will get to that point, you know, where we are able to make these critical parts because inspection capabilities and our understanding um, of the process will, will mature. Tracy, whether we're talking about 3D printing on Earth or in space, you know, is there a sense that 3D printing is a mature technology? Is there still a lot to be done to advance 3D printing? It is very much a, a rapidly maturing technology, and, and there's a lot that, that we still have to learn about it. And some it depends on the manufacturing process. Some 3D printing processes have been around for a long time. Um, some, some are very new. Um, but one of the things that is most exciting is that this is such a quickly emerging and and disruptive technology. And it's not appropriate for every manufacturing scenario, um, but it can revolutionize, you know, a lot of industries. And we've seen that in, in aerospace manufacturing already. Um, so what these technologies do really, and their real advantage is that they make manufacturing possible at the point of use um, and can disrupt supply chains in a, in a positive way, right? Being able to make what you need when you need it. Um, so at NASA, we do a lot of 3D printing for rocket engines applications. Um, and in that context, 3D printing can reduce the part count. So you can consolidate multiple parts into a single build, reduce your number of welds, um, enable new designs. You can get parts with like really intricate internal passages that you simply couldn't build with other manufacturing processes. Um, and obviously the really big one is that you can compress the lead time for a part so you can have a part to test sooner, much earlier in the design cycle. Um, so I have a, a news feed on my computer for 3D printing and almost every day I read about, you know, a new material, a new process, some new variation on an existing process. Um, so it's, it's, it's very exciting. I mean, we still have have a lot to learn, but there are instances on earth where 3D printing is being used, you know, for those, for those critical parts already. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Futech Advanced Sensor Technology specializes in the research and development of sensors that measure force, torque, or pressure. For the past three decades, Futech has had the privilege to work with leading institutions such as NASA on groundbreaking missions like the 2012 Curiosity Mars rover and the upcoming Viper lunar rover. To find out more about how Futech's solutions and capabilities help support innovation in aerospace, visit www.futech.com to check out applications like a multi-axial torque sensor and instrumentation system for quadcopter propeller testing, or the use of force measurement in the launch mechanisms of unmanned aerial vehicles. You can also explore over a hundred application concepts across multiple industries, illustrating the limitless possibilities of Futech's products. Go to futech.com to learn more. What would you say is, I guess, the coolest thing that you've seen 3D printed? So I think in my experience with NASA, uh, one of the most exciting things I got to be a part of, I mentioned it earlier, was the Centennial Challenges 3D printed habitat competition. And so that competition was focused on 
how do you use large scale 3D printing to, to print a habitat and use as your manufacturing feedstock materials the resources that you might have around you. So the rock-based materials that you might find on a planetary surface, um, basalt, regular stimulants, and also plastics or, or polymers. And I feel like that competition did a lot to really drive this technology forward in terms of scaling up. And then also um, looking at these technologies for planetary surface um, construction. And so NASA has has taken some of the lessons from that challenge and is also now working with some of the teams who competed in that challenge to mature these technologies for um, the lunar surface in particular so that you could build habitats or landing pads um, or things in an automated fashion prior to the, the arrival of crew if you were able to deploy a large format. Um, 3D printer. And with that competition too, we really drove or chose to focus on autonomy, right? Because if you're on a precursor mission, you obviously want that remote commanding capability. You don't want to have the need for crew to be there. Um, You know, if something goes wrong, really kind of just being able to automate um, these processes for large scale construction. And that also has you know, really incredible applications here on Earth from disaster response, being able to like 3D print homes, military applications, being able to, you know, drop a a small, not a small, but a large uh, 3D printing, uh, you know, capability or gantry system down into an area and and 3D print barracks. Like Army Corps of Engineers is working in the area. Icon, a company in Austin, Texas, that was actually part of our Centennial Challenge. Um, has been 3D printing homes for the homeless um, in Austin and is also now working with NASA. So you said it's automated. Is it the idea that, say, rovers can do this? Yeah, there are concepts for that where you could have a, a 3D printing capability attached to a rover, right? And that would enable essentially the 3D printer to be mobile. How long would it take to make a, a lunar habitat? So within the context of the Centennial Challenges competition, we were having teams manufacture we call subscale habitats. It took 30 hours um, for them to print the final structures in that in that competition. But on a precursor mission, um, you wouldn't necessarily have that kind of, of time constraint. You could have systems just operating, you know, well in advance of crew. So with polymer concretes, the plastic or regular simulant or basalt blends of materials, those cure almost instantaneously following extrusion. Whereas with more traditional, what you might think of as cementitious materials, um, like more ordinary Portland cement-based formulations, um, those require, you know, a cure time for the, for the structure to set and attain its full strength. I've heard the ISS be referred to as a kind of test bed for 3D printing technologies. And I was wondering if you could help our readers kind of visualize what it's like to be on the space station, particularly, you know, what kinds of 3D printers are on the ISS, how much room do they take? How many how many technologies are there up there? Sure. So the the first 3D printer that we flew is actually no longer on space station. It's back on Earth, but Maiden Space has a commercial 3D printing facility for plastics called Additive Manufacturing Facility that's currently on orbit. And so in terms of size, that printer, I would say, is about the size of a microwave. And so, so part of the printer is, you know, the electronic systems and the extruder. And then part of it is the, is the build platform where the actual manufacturing is done. Um, as we look toward metal systems, 
Um, we need a slightly larger capability for those. So we are looking at one metal printing technology called wire arc additive manufacturing, and that's with Maiden Space. So that's a wire fed extrusion process um, that's very similar to a welding process, MIG welding. And it also has a, a CNC mill in it for, for part finishing and machining. And so that system right now is being designed as, as a, what's called a double tall locker. Um, so you might think of that more as the size of, of a mini fridge. And then we have another system under development uh, with TechShot Incorporated, which is a small business um, in Greenville, Indiana. And so they're looking at a different metal manufacturing process called bound metal deposition. And so for that process, what you would have is, again, a this is, these are wire-fed processes, uh, a filament that's in the form of a wire, and it consists of metal particles that are bound up in a polymer. And so you 3D print with that filament just the way you would with a desktop printer, but then the part is moved into a furnace. And so the furnace bakes off the plastic portion of the part and centers the remaining metal particles. And so that system, because it is this two two-step process that requires a furnace would be much larger. Currently, it's designed to take up an entire rack on space station. So racks are kind of like refrigerator-sized units that payloads or experiments go into. So that one would be about the size of maybe the, the refrigerator you have in your home. So the size um, depends very much on the, the process and, and the system that's, that's doing the manufacturing. But for what's currently on Space Station right now, we have the commercial 3D printing facility for Maiden Space, which is for plastics. There is also um, a recycler payload from NASA, from Taylor's Unlimited. Uh, that's called the refabricator. So that was a system I mentioned that uses the higher strength thermoplastic Ultim 985. And then there's also a commercial recycler that Maiden Space flew through ISS National Lab um, focused on being able to take like a specific type of plastic packaging material and recycle it into filament that you would then use um, with a 3D printer. Um, so those are those are kind of what I think of in terms of like the core manufacturing technologies for recycling and on-demand manufacturing of spares that are currently flying. Um, and then the metal systems I mentioned are in development right now and, and hoping to mature those to fly opportunities within the next few years. So how did you first become involved with 3D printing? So I started at NASA as a materials engineer in 2013, and I had you know, a passing familiarity with desktop printing systems. Uh, but around that same time, I was at a conference and I heard a talk from this company called Mainspace about the 3D printer they were developing uh, with NASA for ISS. So Apollo 13 was, was really my favorite movie as a kid. And I think what really resonated with me um, about this technology was what an incredible capability it would be for a crew to one day develop their own solutions, right? So maybe instead of having a team of people in a back room trying to figure out how to put a, a square peg in a round hole, um, you would just have an astronaut making what he or she needs and then, and then calling back down to Earth to tell Mission Control that, you know, they, hey, I fixed this. I also had, a at that time, a background in, in welding research. And so to me, 3D printing, I saw it as just a layer by layer welding process. It wasn't something I had direct experience with initially, uh, but I thought some of my background might be transferable 
uh, to this field. So when I came to NASA, I did start to look for opportunities to be involved in projects that involve 3D printing. I helped a little with some of the process development that we were doing at that time for 3D printing of metals and then had an opportunity to get involved with the in-space manufacturing project just before the first 3D printed parts that were made on space station were returned to Earth for testing. And so, Tracy, what's kind of a typical day for you uh, as it involves the support of NASA's 3D printing efforts? Sure. So a typical day for me is really helping to provide technical management and oversight of our technology development activities under the in-space manufacturing project. So that could involve input for on-orbit operations that are happening, uh, oversight of ground-based systems that we have in development with commercial companies, and even more just fundamental research on printing and recycling capabilities um, that we fund as a project that will feed forward into some of our future development work. Uh, so I don't work in a lab, um, but the thing I absolutely love about my job is that I really get to be an advocate for these technologies and help lay the roadmap for the future development of how we use these in space. I also get to engage a lot in project formulation and project planning activities. So figuring out not just what we're doing right now and in the near term, but where we as NASA want and need uh, this field to go in the future so that we can enable sustainable exploration. Um, so I really do get to do just things I dreamed about as a kid. And I mean, there isn't a project at NASA to me that isn't just astounding in, in some way. I love space station and, and the research activities we engage in there, but there's also rockets and space telescopes and satellites and Earth observation and aeronautics. Um, so we really get to do the, the things that people will write textbooks about someday. And where are you focusing your efforts right now? And what is NASA trying to do uh, currently with 3D printing? So for in-space manufacturing specifically, we really are focused on building up that catalog of parts that we consider candidates for, for on-demand manufacturing and then testing those out in the, in the platforms that are being developed currently. Our big focus, as I said, is getting to metals manufacturing capability uh, because that is so much more enabling in terms of the applications um, for this technology and the parts that you could could actually produce, but we're also working on recycling and reuse technologies. So one thing I haven't talked about so far is that there is a lot of plastic waste on space station because everything that gets launched is packaged in foams and film. And then those have to actually be stored on space stations. So they're taking up storage space that could be devoted to either, you know, habitation or to science payloads. And those materials are packaged into a module called the Cygnus that burns up on, on reentry. Uh, and so that's a, that's a waste management problem. Um, it's, it becomes more of a waste management problem as you move farther out to gateway or to a lunar surface habitat where, where your habitable volume is much more constrained. And so we're trying to, to work and seed technologies that would enable those materials to actually be used for manufacturing feedstock. Um, and then the other part of that is actually designing materials or selecting materials for launch packaging that are intended to be repurposed and reused in some way, which is not the case right now. 
And so we're trying to really move toward or push for a recycling ecosystem for space, just the way that we have recycling, you know, ecosystems um, for, for Earth. And that really starts with material selection and then in parallel development of the technologies to execute the recycling processes. We also have an element of our project that's focused on 3D printing of electronics. So right now they're doing a lot of a lot of ground-based work on 3D printing of sensors and, and wireless communications capabilities with the goal of one day also being able to do additive manufacturing of electronics on orbit. So there are um, you know, historical incidences of failures of, of sensors and electrical components that having that type of capability would also um, have a good value proposition for. What is most exciting to you about 3D printing and the role it might play in space exploration? So one of the most exciting things is that you, you never know what you might need to make, right? But this technology would give you the capability to, to respond to those kind of unknown uh, situations. So I always think about Scotty on Star Trek, right? Scotty needs, needs manufacturing capabilities and needs, needs to be able to make things to respond to, you know, at times dire, dire situations. Um, and so I think that's the, the exciting um, thing for me is that I see these technologies as, as really enabling for that kind of science fiction future. Uh, so we have Space Station right now, and that's really our test bed for demonstrating these technologies, for proving them out in a microgravity environment with crew for showing how they would be able to support one day with additional maturation, uh, these long endurance missions. Um, also really excited that we're, we're going back to the moon and this time the goal is to have a sustainable presence there and to stay there. And so as I mentioned with you know habitat construction and some things we talked about earlier, you don't get to that sustainable presence really and truly without manufacturing technologies. And so I think our in-space manufacturing work, um, and that includes work at NASA, it includes work at ISS National Lab, it includes work in the commercial sector and at universities. It's really a key piece of, of moving that forward um, and playing a, a small part in that. So I think that everything we're learning and doing will feed forward into those future missions and then also benefit the way that we do manufacturing here on Earth and enabling manufacturing at the point of use and in, in various on-demand scenarios. Tracy Prater, thanks for being with us on Here's an Idea. Thank you so much. I enjoyed this. To our listeners out there, if you want to learn more about the technology featured in today's interview, go to techbriefs.com slash podcast. Here you can also find our previous episodes of Here's an Idea. You can also get these episodes from your favorite podcast provider like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Stitcher. I'm Billy Hurley. Thanks for being with us on Here's an Idea.